Welcome. I'm Alex Jones. I'm the, the director of the Georgetown Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy. I'm very glad to see you all here on this Super Tuesday. Uh, I think that uh, what this may or may not be is uh, something that we will get to eventually, if not immediately. Uh, but our guest today is certainly someone who has the standing to make some both predictions and some analysis depending on how things uh, go today about where it goes from here. And one thing I hope you will also address before our time leaves is the impact you think the flat of uh, Rush Limbaugh will or won't have as far as the uh, campaign is concerned, which I think really is an interesting issue. Melinda Hindenburger is a colleague from the New York Times. Yes, we've had some colleagues before here from the New York Times. Once you are in, have been in, given the inoculation of the New York Times, <laughs> you never you never stop, just like smallpox. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm uh, very glad to say that we are colleagues in that sense. But Melinda went on from there to found Politics Daily, which is a terrific website on AOL.com, and uh, unfortunately no longer around. But she. Uh, was the founder of and organized the team. She's been a very experienced and uh, impression political reporter for a long time, and she is now a uh, political writer for the Washington Post, and her column is called She the People. You don't look like many people. <laughs> There's some other uh, she's. But She the People, uh, I think, uh, I'm sure has uh, something to say about Rush. Melinda, we're very glad to have you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, as I was coming, I was thinking, uh, uh, this is exactly 25 years next year, I guess, uh, that I've been writing about politics. And I was, so I was given some thought to how uh, the coverage uh, that we provide has changed over that time. And my very first uh, assignment doing any kind of politics story at all was when I was a, a baby uh, reporter at the Dallas Morning News in 1988. And for some reason, they invited me to come along and be uh, part of the team covering the, con the Democratic Convention that year in Atlanta. And so on my very first night, you know, this is a big opportunity for me at, at that point. So on my very first night, my first act is to get locked out of the convention hall, <laughs> which was not, the fire marshal had, it wasn't personal, the fire marshal had closed it down. But I realized that the only other woman locked out of the convention hall is Rosa Parks. So here I am, this is before cell phones, right? Or before I had one anyway. So I'm hopping around like a crazy person, like I can be locked out, Rosa Parks cannot, you know, <laughs> trying to get somebody's attention, no. <laughs> um, but, when, and you know, eventually this was taken care of and all was well. But the funny thing looking back on that is, for me, that I didn't write about that. Because, you know, in those days, you didn't write about things that happened to you personally, right? I mean, so here I was, nobody said to me when I came back in and told my editors about it, hey kid, getting locked out with Rosa Parks is probably a little more interesting than the Clinton keynote that you missed while you were out there. Um, and that sort of uh, 
you know, at that point, we really left ourselves out of stories in a way that I think um, kind of cheated the reader a little bit. I mean, another example on that same reporting trip, I was assigned to do a feature story about Gary Hart, who had just dropped out of the race, was assumed that he was going to be the nominee, the Democratic nominee that year. He dropped out of the race after this sex scandal. So my assignment was to follow him around, do a day in the life of Gary Hart. So in the course of the uh, reporting, he propositions me. That too does not go in the story. Why would that's about me? I can't put that in the you know. Today, I mean, just as a as a little sort of window into how much what we changed uh, what we do has changed. And I really do think that the transparency we have today is is so much better for the reader when really nothing happens off stage anymore. When we really do tell you um, how the sausage is made. Um, but one thing that hasn't changed is that covering politics is very humbling. Um, because, you know, a few months ago, just think, I mean, everybody knew that this election was going to be, you know, jobs, 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 of course. With, with the unemployment rate so high, what else could it possibly about? And how do we not see coming that the election is really about birth control? <laughs> um, how we got here, I think, is a really interesting uh, story. And to the many people who are asking why on earth would Republicans want to run on birth control, I really think the answer is they don't. Um, I think that uh, if we just go back and look how it happened, so, you know, the economy's still unemployment very high, things very sluggish. Liberals very disappointed in Obama and not at all uh, energized in any way. Um, Ralph Nader is running around doing his thing, you know, talking about again uh, recruiting someone to run a, a third party. Uh, then something happened that really was, on the face of it, completely unrelated to presidential politics, which is. Uh, Nancy Brinker, you know, who founded this charity, Komen Race for the Cure, I think uh, founded it after her and named it after her sister, Susan Komen, who had died of breast cancer at a very young age and has done some terrific work over the years. I think, ironically, in an attempt to take abortion politics off the table for her organization, She's so miscalculated how that would be perceived in this uh, very polarized time, and maybe especially in an election year. So she makes that decision, all hell breaks loose, in a way that benefits not the decision to withdraw funding from Planned Parenthood for the breast exams that had been done for them by Com uh, through Common. Uh, funding. So all of a sudden, you know, this is an issue and this is a big fundraising plus, not just for Planned Parenthood, but for all the pro-choice groups, for Emily's List, and for all the arms of the uh, fundraising arms of the Democratic Party. And when the Republican candidates all weighed in and said, this is terrific, we certainly approve of what Nancy Brinker is doing here, 
that just sort of cemented um, the idea that Democrats had been trying to push for a long <coughs> time, but had not really been getting any traction with, that there is a war, a, a war on women, that Republicans are waging a war on women. So now suddenly they're raising lots of money off this. Really, it, it couldn't have gone, this. I think this primary, GOP primary in general, could not have gone better for the Democrats. Um, and so now we've forgotten all about this um, this idea we had only a short time before that this race was going to be, this presumed Romney-Obama race was just going to be, uh, you know, kind of Goldwater versus Mondale with the slight twist that one of them actually had to win. So um, now, very importantly, suddenly Democratic women are very energized. And all those liberals who, you know, they've forgotten they were ever taking a minute, you know, off to figure things out. Now they're back in a big way. Another thing that looked like a disaster for Democrats for a minute there that has again turned out to be a huge boost, I think, to Democrats' chances is uh, the administration's decision on the Health and Human Services decision to initially to limit uh, and to deny a religious exemption to religious institutions who did not want to add uh, birth control coverage to their mandated insurance under the Affordable Care Act. At first, you know, big outcry over religious liberty, and I happen to think that's a very serious issue. Um, but after just a small compromise that Obama made in saying, no, the insurance companies will pay for it, not the institutions, um, again, this put the focus on the Republican candidates being asked what they think about this. Well, of course, you know, they are very outraged on behalf of these inc perceived incursions on religious liberty. And what that translates to for the public <coughs> is now the race isn't, the, the issue at hand isn't about religious liberty, now it's about birth control. So the more this race is about birth control, the better it is for Democrats. So everywhere the Republican candidates go, they're asked about birth control. And I mean, I've gone back and looked at all the tapes. It really has not been Republican candidates saying, say, I'd like to talk about my big issue, contraception. It really is they're asked questions by reporters, they answer the questions. And then they're criticized for talking about the issue all the time uh, in a way that, that, again, has been very helpful um, to, to Democrats. And Rick Santorum in particular, of course, because of his path, because of his uh, role as a very strong social conservative, was being asked these questions all along. And it's just so fascinating to me to see his even apparent, um, you know, he's exasperated often when he's asked about it. But one thing you can say about him for good and for ill is that if you ask him a question, he will answer it at some length. Uh, and I, you know, normally I think that's an asset, but I think it has not, uh, has not been something that's worked his advantage in this. So, in fact, if you go out with him, the thing he wants to talk about every on the trail, the thing he wants to talk about every single day is not even abortion, it's Iran. 
I mean, he has been talking about Iran every day since his race in 06. Um, so there's really this disconnect between, you know, I think what we see is their intense focus and, and what actually is. Um, but so by the time we got to this big brouhaha that, that you mentioned earlier, it's more than that, I shouldn't characterize it that way, uh, involving this Georgetown student, Sandra Fluck, I mean, that was just icing on the cake for the Democrats. And again, to me, it's so interesting how that happened, is that they were, the Republicans called what they really thought was a hearing on religious liberty, on the very narrow question of how do we deal with, should we or should we not have a broader exemption for religious institutions who don't want to include this in their health care. And for that hearing, Sandra Fluke really was not the ideal witness for a couple reasons. One is that as she's a student rather than an employee, her uh, insurance coverage actually wouldn't change one way or the other under the, the narrow issue they were talking about. Uh, it really only affects employees. Um, and then, too, her, the story she was telling was secondhand because she was talking about a friend of hers who had lost an ovary because she didn't have, she couldn't afford to be on the pill. So, you know, if you think about it, if you were writing a story about this, you probably wouldn't have Sandra Fluke in the story. You'd want to talk to the friend herself, or who had actually had that happen to her, or you would want to talk to somebody who, um, had, you know, was an employee rather than a student. But all those distinctions, of course, flew out the window when Rush Limbaugh made his very charming remarks about her. And uh, I think this is a big, big deal in the election, actually, because not just because you know this this radio talk show host said this, but because the candidates refused to say anything, uh, taking him on in the least, you know. And to me, it was a <coughs> no-brainer that they would have they would take this as a sister soldier moment that they would go out and say. You know, believe me, I do not condone those remarks. Believe me, this is not how we feel about women. I mean, that that was so that that would have worked really well. Instead, you know, either silence or when pressed. I mean, you know, Romney said, "Well, it wouldn't have been you know my words of choice." Uh, Rick Santorum said, "Well, he's an entertainer," and and you know, I think that that will really be. I mean, when you look at uh, what the effect has been. Um, Obama's ratings with women have gone up so much in a short time. I mean, his approval rating in December with women uh, was 40%, and now it's 45%. I mean, that's, that's a really kind of dramatic increase. Um, and I think a lot of it does have to do with this birth control conversation. Because even when, if you talk about abortion, I mean, that is an issue that still, um, the, the country is closely divided on that. If you talk about birth control, it's not a close call. I mean, really, women voters across the spectrum, uh, I think, are pretty decided on where they want to be on that one. Um, the other really interesting thing that I think you see out of this is a big uh, change in this election. Uh, 
in terms of just the vast, unlimited amount of cash in the election as a result of the Citizens United uh, Supreme Court decision. So, you know, I don't know, with, all, with this much money in, in the thing, I don't see how we can really ever, uh, it, it's discouraging in any case to think about how, how do we get back to a little more civil discourse, um, how do we combat this really over-the-top polarization when the system, the fundraising requires this sort of cataclysmic view of things, you know? I mean, people generally don't cut a check because they think things are a bit awry. They cut a check if they think things are a disaster is, is headed this way, you know, which is why I think um, you s and then you see this interesting symbiotic relationship between Republicans and Democrats where, and especially you see this in the pro-life and the pro-choice movements, where they really just feed off one another's horrors to, to raise money. I mean, and it, it's really a situation in which outrage is oxygen. So you cannot just have Republicans saying they disagree with the Affordable Care Act, they call Obamacare. It really has to be our whole way of life is on the line. You know, or you see uh, Romney, who doesn't even seem like the same guy often who was governor here, saying, you know, we're an inch away from losing the free market system. Wow. Um, and then by the same token, though, I, I find the language on, on from Democrats cataclysmic, too. I mean, I think you could argue that this war on women, a war on women is when you throw acid on a girl's face on her way to school. I'm not sure a war on women is a disagreement over uh, social issues. So, but as long as we have these vast sums that must be raised and these rewards for, for being in this mode of um, disastrous constantly an inch away, um, that's pretty hard to combat. Not that uh, that's completely new, that way of, you know, the sky is falling. I mean, uh, you know, that's what direct mail, political direct mail has sort of done forever. And um, I remember I grew up in a very conservative family who uh, talked about politics every single day. And uh, I remember having a, a friend over uh, in high school who burst into tears in my house because she heard my aunt say the communists were coming. And <laughs> so I had to just kind of say, this since birth. I don't think it's happening today. <laughs> so, but I do think that, you know, the new sums of money that are greater than ever, um, the compressed news cycle from, uh, you know, because of the internet, and, you know, the shout culture, uh, the shout show culture uh, on cable, those things have come together to make um, the more extreme views and the less, um, to sort of tamp down the desire to try and, and come to more, uh, more to the center, sort of listen to each other in a little different way. I think that now um, there's much more acceptance of this kind of nastiness and even emulation. I mean, I think that ordinary people 
see, uh, you know, see these political leaders, thought leaders anyway, on cable screaming, and then they think, you know, oh, that's political discourse. So um, I think that, uh, you know, those are things that, that I, I wish I knew the answer to. Um, and in terms of what's going to happen in this crazy race, I mean, anyone who says they know even now, I think, is really just pretending, you know. Um, <coughs> we're sort of back where we started to assuming that, you know, I think today, whether we call it technically or not, the, uh, the race for the nomination is over today. <coughs> and you already have a lot of Republicans saying that they're, they've almost written off the chance for Romney to win, that you know, they're focusing now more on some of the House races and trying to hold the House um, because things look so much more dire for them than they did you know, even a couple of months ago. But with eight months to go, I mean, that's an eternity, and things can change a couple of more times before then. So, and I, I saw something just in the news this morning where um, Joe Lieberman was saying that he would like to find a third party candidate to support, and, and very much uh, given what happened to him, um, you know. <laughs> find that really ironic. Uh, that's one word I can use. Um, but, you know, I think that's just a reminder that, uh, especially in a country that is so closely divided, it doesn't take a lot to swing an election. And so, you know, we have a long way to go and, and really um, many more um, exciting, I'm, think, I'm sure, uh, storylines, but narratives that, that we had encountered on. So I'd love to hear your questions. I, I'm gonna. I'd like to take the first comment. <coughs> first of all, I want to go back to something you said uh, that I, I find an interesting question about whether what reporters see now is more apt to find its way. In one sense, that seems to be true, and yet we're now finding out. We have found out that reporters were aware of what John Edwards was doing in 2008. And nobody did anything about it. Nobody reported it. Nobody explored it. Everyone just sort of ignored it. That struck me as a kind of throwback to the Gary Hart moment, almost in a way, when you didn't put in your story that you did on. I think that was a bit. I could be wrong, of course, but I think that was a bit of a different situation. I mean, of a unique situation in that. I think had Edwards had even a tiny shot at actually getting the nomination, that would have changed overnight. And I think the other reality was that everyone knew Elizabeth was dying. And people, people were very fond of Elizabeth. And that made it a very difficult situation that uh, in a way people felt they didn't have to deal with since he was in no danger of coming anywhere close to the nomination. Well, are there any sort of secrets that are being kept by the press now? <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I said that there's, there, everything is divulged now, I guess I meant more like what we see, like something as innocuous as, you know, Rosa Parks or um, a conversation in an elevator or that sort of thing is all out there now and how the process works is all out there now. 
I actually continue to believe that we run, we still run away from sex scandals more than I think people ever thought. I, I think, I'm not talking about the tabloid press, obviously, but, you know, in every, in every race, you hear a lot of things, some of them are probably true, and some of them are probably not true, and I just don't see the zeal to report that out unless it becomes something that can't be ignored, either because somebody steps to the microphone and announces they had a relationship with the candidate, or because it's in some kind of court filing, you know, a lawsuit was how a lot of the Clinton stuff came out. Um, I mean, I remember being in the Four Seasons in Austin on Super Tuesday of 2000 with the Bush group. And somebody came up to the press room and said, hey, there's a woman down in the bar who says she had uh, an affair with Clinton. And people laughed and nobody got up. <laughs> must be a crowded bar. How do you know that? <laughs> what a funny so, story. Yeah. You said that you thought you know, the, the Republican nomination will be over today. I assume you mean that, that Romney will be clearly the, the winner. Um, what is your take on the significance of the America elects idea? It's there, it's in place. They are determined to offer a place on the ballot in every state to some third party candidate that is chosen by some sort of <coughs> election right. online. And um, do you think that it one, do you think it's going to be meaningful? Um, and if if not, do you think it's, you know, is this just a colossal waste of money? Or is it something that could, for instance, if a Joe Lieberman decided he wanted to go for a third party candidacy, uh, could it uh, could it be the, the, the Ralph Nader moment? Well, we hope we don't have another one of those, at least I personally do. Um, and not for partisan reasons, by the way, but because I thought it was so dishonest of Ralph Nader to insist the whole way through that there was no, different, no difference between Bush and Gore, and that to me wasn't an accurate, anywhere near accurate assessment. Um, we don't know. You know, we don't know what this could mean, but I don't think we should write it off because, as I said, it doesn't, when you, when you have an electorate that is so closely divided that, you know, a few more uh, election machines, balloting machines in Ohio where people, you know, in poor neighborhoods stood in the rain trying to vote for 12 hours uh, in 04, and, you know, that's, that really is why John Kerry lost. It really came down to that. So I don't think, it may not be significant, but we can't write anything off because um, something so small that, that we may not even take it seriously at this point could end up making mm -hmm. a difference. Let me invite students to take the first crack at questions. If there are students who have questions, just hold your hand up and uh, you will get the, the, the first crack at Belinda. Any? <coughs> Okay, then I declare the floor open to other to other questions. Let me, yeah, go ahead. Uh, do you think the Tea Party phenomena has peaked or not? Well, they uh, 
certainly don't have the energy they had in 2010, or we would be seeing a very different picture. And I think that Occupy was sort of an antidote to that. What, you know, whether they turn out to have more staying power, we don't know yet either. But I do think it, they seem to have faded a bit. But they still are a force in Congress. And, you know, that's kind of a district-by-district district thing. I think that there are still some places where they could do very well. I mean, there's still some uh, Republicans who've been in office for a long time who are still facing serious primary challenges from Tea Party-type candidates. So I don't, I don't think it's over. It may be in a, in a dormancy. <laughs> well, let me moment. ask you a hypothetical based on, based on that. Let's say the candidate is Romney. And let's say, hypothetically, <coughs> if Romney loses, then what happens to the Republican Party? Well, you know, there's a lot of discussion of that already. I mean, people have have skipped a few uh, a few uh, spaces ahead and, and are talking about whether there's a lot of discussion within the Republican Party over whether it would be great to have you know, Romney lose big, and so then they realize how they have to go back to their roots and, you know, show their true conservative colors, and, you know, then maybe they go back to starting over with a much more radical uh, Tea Party-inspired um, idea. I, I don't know. I mean, I still... I still don't think it's off the table that Romney could win. So many no, no, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I'm know you're saying, not. But well, I yeah. mean, some people have already skipped to that, and mm -hmm. I think on both sides, and I think that's that's quite premature. Um, but I don't. I think it's always a bad idea to have uh, a candidate no one's excited about. I mean, we've seen candidates like that on both sides. It doesn't work that well. You know, I I want to go over to Romney headquarters for the party after after tonight, and I want to ask people, you know, what do you like best about your guy? You know, I wonder how quick those answers will come. I don't know, um, because and you know, I, you saw that with Kerry in '04. You didn't hear, you know, you never heard. People, well, I won't say never, but you rarely on the stump heard people say they were just, you know, were gaga for him. So, you know, hi, so I want to pick up a little on where you were with asking about sort of the future of the Republican Party, if sort of. I think back to sort of, um, you know, back to the future now. I mean, when you were talking, I was thinking about two things. One was Pat Buchanan's speech before the convention, which really was deem sort of the cultural war, which in many ways I think sounds familiar with what's happening now with the kind of language that's being used. And the other thing is to think back to um, Susan Faludi's book, which looks awfully prescient now with the notion of backlash. And sort of the backlash as women have made progress, as women have become 56% of the students at colleges, as they have gone into in increasing numbers in the profession, as the recession has affected men in many ways more harshly than it has women in their professions. So I'm wondering whether, in fact, you responded to Alex's by saying that you'd see the impulse to maybe dig deeper into the conservative roots. I'm wondering if there aren't some people, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that, in the Republican circles that would 
think maybe the opposite is true. Go back to some of the experiences like Buchanan's speech and the rest and think maybe this isn't where our roots are. Maybe they're with Lincoln, maybe they're with Rockefeller, maybe they're with different aspects of this. Obviously there are those voices in the party, but they have certainly been marginalized in recent years. I mean, look at Olympia Snow running. <coughs> That's um, from, I mean, that's a serious indication a decision. Of, yeah. of how marginalized I think. Moderates often uh, in both parties feel that way, but I think more so on the right. I mean, Nancy Pelosi, I think one thing that she doesn't get enough credit for is how she realized that she could not have a majority without bringing in some pro-life Democrats and some very conservative Democrats. Mm -hmm that she could 